Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, born of a particular woman, born under the law according to St. Joseph, again a particular man. In this you teach us that indeed you wish to enter the hearts of each and every single individual. We see especially an example of the Emperor Constantine, how you worked great things through his opening to you. We ask that you grant that grace to us as well, to be open to your will and to enact your great power in our lives. And we ask this through the words your Son has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. May the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Please welcome back Professor Brendan McGuire. Thank you. Thanks, guys. I think where we left off, just to recap very briefly where we left off last time, we basically left off having come to appreciate the reforms of Diocletian. Basically, the way in which Diocletian reformed the Roman Empire and averted the catastrophe that pretty much looked like it was going to happen in the third century crisis. We looked at the way in which uh, Constantine, as a young man, took his position in the Tetrarchy upon Diocletian's resignation and with all the chaos that, that attended Diocletian's resignation in 305. Then I, I think we, we, we talked a little bit about Diocletian's involvement in civil wars and, and the way in which he faced off with Maxentius in Italy in 312. So uh, let's basically begin there and uh, come to appreciate the way in which Constantine came to rule the entire empire, first of all, because it's a dramatic story. And then, having, having kind of taken that into account, we'll be able to assess uh, his reforms and the way in which Diocletian, in a very real sense, was responsible, as no other man was, for the creation of what can actually be called a Christian civilization. Uh, I mean, certainly Christianity comes from Christ and the apostles, but Christian civilization, in a very real sense, comes from Constantine. Right. Having done that, we, we may be able to move on and look at Constantine's legacy and uh, look at the challenges the empire faced later in the 4th century. So, that having been said, let's look at it this way. By the time the dust had settled in 312, remember, there were four tetrarchs standing. Right? We remember that. We were left with four tetrarchs, but they were neither friends nor allies with one another. We were left with Constantine. We were left with Licinius. We had Maxentius. And we had Maximin. All four tetrarchs by, in 312 were officially still pagans, of course. Now, remember, how many tetrarchs are you supposed to have? What does tetrarch mean? Four. You're supposed to have four, right? But you're not supposed to have these four. Remember, these are the four tetrarchs that, that happened to be left standing after all the, the chaos and all the wars that had followed uh, Diocletian's resignation. Now, we should, first of all, um, you know, pay our, our passing respects to, uh, to Diocletian. Diocletian's tetrarchy is often criticized as something that failed. It's criticized as something that failed to achieve its object. And taken from a certain point of view, that's accurate. We can say that the, the Tetrarchy didn't necessarily ensure peaceful and orderly succession, which is what it was designed to do. On the other hand, it can be noted that not one Tetrarch was ever successfully deposed by a rebel, first of all. Right? What really plagued the Tetrarchy was civil wars among the Tetrarchs. Usurpers and upstarts tended to be unsuccessful. And furthermore, no foreign invader made significant inroads into the empire despite the civil wars of the Tetrarchy. Quite a different thing from the third century crisis. You know, very much a, a different situation. So the Tetrarchy and its history, to a certain extent, actually vindicates Diocletian's judgment rather than undermines it. And Constantine certainly believed that. For the most part, Diocletian's system, at least in theory, 
uh, would be the, you know, the governing system of the Roman Empire in late antiquity. So be that as it may, by 312, you had four tetrarchs who were standing in a kind of awkward situation. Not, you know, nobody wanted to draw the six-shooter first, basically, in 312. The situation was this. Constantine controlled Britain and Gaul. Maxentius, immediately to his west, controlled Italy. Licinius controlled Illyricum. And Maximin controlled the east. So if you're envisioning this geographically, Constantine shares a border with Maxentius. Maxentius in Italy would share a border both with Constantine and with Licinius. Right? So Maxentius, to his right, he would have Licinius. To his left, he would have Constantine. And then, of course, Maximin in the east shares a border with Licinius. All right. So I'm, I'm not going to try to draw a map of the Mediterranean on the marker board. That would be humiliating. But, uh, <laughs> but if anybody, I've, I've, I've done that before, but I'm being filmed right now, so I don't think I'll try. <laughs> so, I, I do that for my students. <laughs> but, um, but envision it this way. When, when envision England, France, and of course, you know, the, the other big Atlantic province, which is Hispania, right? Spain and Portugal. Okay. Those territories to the far west basically under Constantine's control. All right. uh, Italy, of course, under Maxentius's control. Now, Illyricum, what's Illyricum? That's the one that people don't get. Uh, basically, Illyricum is, roughly speaking, the former Yugoslavia. All right. So if, if that rings a bell, you, you know where that borders Italy, around Trieste or so. All right. So Licinius would share a border with Italy on the one hand, and with Maximin in the east on the other hand. Licinius controlled Thrace and Greece, uh, and his border extended basically up to, up to the Bosporus, up to the Straits, where Maximin's domains began. Now, what's the situation of Christianity under these you know, last four tetrarchs. Well, basically, Constantine, of the four of them, was by far the one who was most sympathetic to Christianity. Even before his conversion, even before his great victory at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, Constantine seems to have been disposed to be favorable towards Christianity. Now, there's a variety of reasons why that may have been the case. We know that Constantine's father was somewhat sympathetic to Christianity. We know that Constantine's family adopted a theology of, of who they were that distinguished themselves from Diocletian's dynasties. Remember, Diocletian's artificial dynasties were, of course, the, the sons of Jupiter in the east and the sons of Hercules in the west. Uh, Constantius and Constantine didn't like being called the sons of Hercules. So they associated themselves with Apollo. Apollo was identified in the west with the sun god, the Sol Invictus. The, the, the cult of the Sol Invictus was a, a particular way of, of worshipping Apollo. If, you, if you're wondering how that works, it's kind of like we have Our Lady of Lords and Our Lady of Fatima and Our Lady of Good Counsel and Our Lady of Good Hope and whoever else we venerate. The, the Sol Invictus was, it was a, a special way of honoring Apollo. It was a special title belonging to Apollo. Now, the cult of the Sol Invictus in the West, from what we know about it, it bore some superficial resemblances to Christianity, if you will. Christmas was a big deal for the cult of the soul Invictus. Right? Why? Just, I mean, purely by coincidence, because you've had the winter solstice and the sun starts getting, you know, you have more and more hours of daylight right, right around that time of year. Uh, so the feast of the soul Invictus was right around Christmas time. Sunday was a big deal for the cult of the soul Invictus uh, in late antiquity. So, so you have some superficial resemblances there. And so Constantine and his father never implemented the persecution decrees of Diocletian. Right? In the east, Galerius and Maximin, the, the tetrarchs who had ruled in, in places where there were a lot of Christians, they did tend to be big persecutors. Constantine and his father were not. Right? What about Licinius? Licinius was willing to be pragmatic, as we'll see. Right, he's willing to be pragmatic. Uh, and, of course, they all have to be pragmatic in political terms. So what happens is, as soon as this situation comes into existence, with the death of Galerius and the elimination of the other rivals, as soon as you get the situation where you have four competing tetrarchs, of course, alliances are, are what's going to happen. Right, so we see Constantine makes his alliance with Licinius pretty much right away. He's the first one to move on an alliance. He actually marries his sister off to Licinius. That results in the two Maxes, Maxentius and Maximin, forming an alliance. Right. Now, you have a situation here where, for the most part, no one's willing to attack each other, right, if you think about it. You have two emperors on the ends and two emperors in the middle. Right. The two emperors in the middle are officially enemies, but they're not going to attack each other in the middle because that would leave their rears open to attack, right? Uh, and, of course, Maximin in the east, he has to worry about the Persians. The only emperor who has one border to worry about is Constantine, because his other border is the Atlantic Ocean, 
Right? He doesn't have an enemy on his other side, unlike the other three guys. So Constantine is able to be the first one to move. In 312, despite inferior numbers, Constantine moved against Maxentius and invaded Italy. Now, this is when the famous story of Constantine's conversion takes place. And there are different versions of it in the different early Christian sources, of course. If we, if we put them together, all right, it looks like there are two different things going on with Constantine's conversion. Part of it was a vision that he claimed to have had, and part of it allegedly took place in a dream. The vision that Constantine supposedly had was that of a cross in the sun, and he thought it was the sun god trying to tell him something. Right? He thought Apollo was sending him a message with a cross in the sun. But in the dream he had, what was explained to him was that if he placed a monogram of the letters of Christ's name on his soldiers' devices, that victory would be granted to him. We have to understand that for the ancient, as for the medievals, the outcome of battles was a divine judgment. Right? It's easy as modern people to tend to forget that. Right? For the ancients, for pagans, for Christians, for Muslims, for everyone, in antiquity, in late antiquity, and in the Middle Ages. The outcome of a battle was always a divine judgment. So when Constantine is, is, when he feels like he's receiving these messages and these dreams, whether they're genuine or not is, of course, impossible as, as historians to verify. But the fact of the matter is that he thought he was having visions telling him to do this, right? The validity of this is going to be vindicated by the outcome of the battle in Constantine's mind. The truth of these visions, the veracity of these visions, is going to be vindicated in pragmatic terms based on how the battle turns out. And so, of course, what happened is when Constantine met Maxentius outside of Rome at the Milvian Bridge in 312 and defeated him, Christianity was vindicated. Christianity was vindicated resoundingly for Constantine and for his troops. And that's why Constantine didn't go to the Capitoline Hill to make the traditional sacrifices to Jupiter. That's why Constantine violated protocol and precedent in all sorts of ways after winning this battle. A pagan emperor was expected to do certain things, and Constantine didn't do them. And that's how we know that at least some kind of conversion has taken place here. He was not a baptized Christian. He was not a well-instructed Christian at this point, but in some sense he was a Christian. Now, we do have to confront this issue of if he accepts the truth of Christianity, why does he not accept baptism? Right? My students are always scandalized by this. If he accepts the truth of Christianity, why does he deliberately avoid baptism? Is it because he's insincere? It was even asked of me one time, you know, is it possible that Constantine's conversion was purely political? Was he politically motivated in his conversion? The fact of the matter is that positing a political motivation for the conversion makes no sense. Now, Constantine was a, was a highly imperfect man. He could definitely be pragmatic when he needed to. He could definitely be ruthless when he needed to be. And he, he showed his ruthlessness and his pragmatism at various points in his life. But his conversion seems to be the one point when he wasn't acting pragmatically. Christianity was a minority faith within the empire. It didn't particularly ingratiate Constantine with anyone to convert to Christianity. And yet he does. Right? And yet he does. He begins to associate himself with his new faith. He begins to make all kinds of measures to favor Christianity within the empire. And there's no possible way to account for it in political terms. His conversion, although, although he certainly was ill-instructed in the faith, he certainly never seems to have grasped really theology or its importance or anything like that. His instruction in Christian doctrine was uneven and some of it was provided by heretics and whatever. But despite those various things, we have to at least accept that his conversion was sincere. So why does he refuse baptism? Why does a guy like Constantine not accept it? Oh, we have a hand here. What's up? Oh, I asked. Yeah, go ahead. Go for it. I just well, th th you're right. I mean, that's, that's certainly part of it. What, what was suggested was that Constantine would delay baptism uh, until right before he dies so that he could have not only his past sins forgiven, but his future sins forgiven. <laughs> right? uh, it's, that certainly may have played into his thinking. In fact, you read that rationale in, in many reputable texts. But I'm going to argue that it's not the primary reason. Having the, the sins of his future forgiven in baptism would not have been his primary reason for delaying it. The primary reason for an emperor to delay baptism is to avoid the rigors of church discipline. Now, we kind of chuckle, we laugh, because the rigors of church discipline nowadays are nothing. Right? In late antiquity, the rigors of church discipline were very serious, especially for an emperor. Right? Especially for someone who had to deal with matters of statecraft, life and death, war, execution, these sorts of things. Right? We have to remember how uncomfortable early Christianity was with killing. 
Early Christianity did not have comfortable categories for the death penalty, for, for just war, for any of these things. These things had to be worked out over the course of time. What early Christianity did have was very severe canonical penalties and penances for people who shed blood. Even in the canons of St. Basil the Great, soldiers who shed blood, Christian soldiers who shed blood in just war, were prohibited from going to communion for three years after having done so. The shedding of blood was taken very, very seriously. That's why in the Byzantine tradition, in the Eastern tradition, we see these weird things, these weird punishments like slitting people's tongues and cutting off their ears and blinding them with hot pokers and uh, castrating them and things like that. We see these things and we say, how could a Christian civilization like Byzantium do this? Well, they did it because in the West, those same people would have been subject to the death penalty. Whereas in the East, you have the, the maintenance of a late antique uncomfortability with imposing the death penalty. And they would find excuses to use other punishments when possible. I mean, it is another funny thing about being in the modern West that we're very comfortable, not, not all of us, some of us are very comfortable with the death penalty, but would be very uncomfortable with legal maiming or <laughs> whatever. And there's kind of a contradiction there. We have this funny thing in the courts now where the death penalty is okay as long as it doesn't hurt or something. <laughs> it's, it's really odd. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, <laughs> so, so for Constantine, to accept baptism and then to rule as an emperor, that's going to really tie his hands in certain ways. The rigors of church discipline to be imposed on an acting emperor would be something unprecedented. He feels like he has to have his hands free to mete out death and judgment, to execute people when he has to, and he certainly wasn't afraid to do that. He executed his own wife and his eldest son, and, you know, various other people at different points when he felt like he had to. Certainly anyone who smelled like a rebel or, or a traitor was gone, and obviously waging war was a big part of, of what Constantine did for most of his life. He was at war. And so to accept baptism would, would certainly have imposed restrictions. Where he didn't want to find out what the implications of that would be. Right? And so delaying baptism is going to be important. He will end up being baptized right before his death. Now, Westerners are always scandalized when they learn a lot about Constantine's life, and then they find out that the East considers him a saint. Westerners are usually scandalized because they say to themselves, how could a man who, if he squeaked into heaven, who <laughs> was pretty lucky, be considered and held up as a saint? And the answer is, how many sins did he commit between his baptism and his death? As many as the good thief. And he's also considered a saint. So it's, 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 a, it's a very similar story. When you look at the story of Constantine, you see imperfections and all kinds of things. And, and as, as a Western Christian, oftentimes you're offended. How can this man be a saint? Well, the good thief was a saint too. And that's, that's the answer that I give to my students when they get upset. But anyway, so Constantine enters Rome in triumph then in 312. He's, he's accepted as the Western emperor. Uh, it, it takes a little bit of effort to be accepted throughout the Western Empire. Remember, the Western Empire includes Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Spain, places wh whose allegiance had kind of been up in the air. But sending them a box with Maxentius's head in it usually does the trick. Uh, and so <laughs> that's what Constantine ended up doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you get a FedEx package, you open it, and you know, there's <laughs> Maxentius's head. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So, so we can eliminate Maxentius then. <laughs> right. And that leaves us with what? That leaves us with three claimants to the, the various tetrarchal thrones. Constantine controlling the West, you have Licinius left, and then Maximin. Now, Licinius did not feel comfortable waging war against Maximin. Maximin preempted him by attacking Thrace in 312. And so Licinius had to, of course, uh, he had no choice, he had to go and fight. He won a surprise victory drove Maximin into Asia Minor, pursued him there in 313, uh, eventually defeated him. Finally, Maximin fled all the way to Tarsus in Syria, uh, and he realized he could no longer rally his troops at that point, and so Maximin hanged himself. Uh, so we lose Maximin in 313. So that leaves us with two emperors. Now 313 is an interesting moment, because it looks like there's the possibility that Constantine and Licinius could rule the empire as a, as a kind of a diarchy, with Licinius controlling the entire east and Constantine controlling the entire west. Right? Evidence that this might work out comes in 313 when you have the issuing of the famous Edict of Milan. Right? The Edict of Milan, of course, exempted Christians from persecution and made Christianity legal, but they also took steps to restore the property of Christians that had been confiscated during the persecutions. So Christianity is fully rehabilitated. It's fully made legal now with the Edict of Milan. But 
problems emerge almost immediately. Almost immediately, as soon as Christianity is once again out in the open, after the persecutions of Diocletian and his colleagues, what kinds of issues do you have to deal with? You have to deal with the issue of how do you handle Christians who gave up the faith under persecution? This becomes a profound problem for the church. All right, so that, that's problem number one. Problem number two, right, that suddenly comes out into the open when Christianity is legalized, is a dispute in the Church of Alexandria about how to talk about the relationship between Christ and the Father. Right? And this is a dispute that initially uh, involves the great theological centers of Alexandria and then Antioch, in Syria, but eventually it becomes a conflagration that consumes the entire church. Right? So now Licinius is looking at this. Remember, Licinius controls the East. And Licinius apparently decided that the church in the East was just too fractious. You had too many schisms. Uh, he actually made a law at one point forbidding bishops to have synods in the East because they would get together and they would just fight. Uh, and I mean really fight. If you think about 4th century bishops, they actually would fight at synods. I mean, that, that's what St. Nicholas is famous for, right? He's famous for taking Arius and punching him in the face at the Council of Nicaea, right? Uh, so, so you have these real fights, and it's fights over issues that matter to the church. And this is something that the emperors didn't understand. You have one Christian emperor and one pagan emperor, both of whom are officially tolerating Christianity, but neither of whom understands the importance of these disputes. All right? So the, the first dispute, how do you deal with the behavior of Christians who, who gave up the faith in time of persecution? Nowadays, it would seem like a no-brainer. You know, basically, you just welcome them back and forgive them. And people weren't thinking that way, at, at least pious and devout people who had undergone uh, serious suffering in the time of Diocletian, in the time of Galerius, in the time of Maximin. Right? They really didn't want to simply, for example, give bishoprics back to bishops who had left their sees in time of persecution. Right? or to give churches back to priests who had left their churches in time of persecution. So if somebody was a bishop and fled a persecution and then came back to his see and there's another bishop there, who's the real bishop? Right? It's a serious problem. You have a controversy, a major controversy, over this precise issue in Alexandria. Now Alexandria was, of course, an apostolic see. Alexandria was a very, very prominent and important see in the East. It was, in many ways, the most important see in the East. I mean, Alexandria and Antioch are certainly the two that, that stand out as most important and influential. Egypt was, of course, in, in so many ways, more important than Syria, as far as the Eastern Empire was concerned. It was filled with Christians. It was much wealthier than Syria. It was a, a better grain-producing region and all of that. Uh, and so Alexandria stands out in, in certain ways as being the most visible and prominent see in the East. Now Licinius finds that in the Church of Alexandria you have two competing lines of bishops, basically dating to Diocletian's persecution. The schism, as it's called in the Church of Alexandria, is called the Militian Schism. It's named after the bishop Militius, who was... Militius, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, Militius, or however you want to pronounce his name, uh, who had actually taken over the see after the previous bishop had fled in time of persecution. And then when the, the fleeing bishop returned after the Edict of Milan, Militius didn't want to give up the see, right, for obvious reasons. He felt, well, I, I was the one who was faithful in time of persecution. I've ordained a bunch of priests. I've been, you know, witnessing marriages and hearing confessions and doing everything that a bishop did in late antiquity. And, of course, the other bishop comes back and renders everything null and void, and now you have two churches, right? It, it's a very serious situation, right? So this is something that's going to kind of rock the, the peace of the church in Alexandria and in the East in general for a long time to come. The other issue, though, the other issue was even more bitter and even more long-lasting, and that is the controversy over how to describe the relationship between Christ and the Father. This is often referred to, perhaps misleadingly, as the Arian controversy. It's called the Arian controversy because it's named after a priest from Alexandria who first got in trouble for, uh, for talking about this the wrong way. But, of course, the controversy was so much larger than just one man, and it was so much larger than, than just one set of dogmas or interpretations. Basically, Arius was a priest in Alexandria who taught in a way that seemed logical to many within the church. He said, look, we don't have language, technical philosophical language from Scripture, that tells us how the Son is related to the Father. What we do have are these names, Father and Son. Right? And so Arius taught, look, if the Father is a Father, and if the Son is a Son, then there had to be a time when the Father existed and the Son did not. 
the father has to kind of predate the son somehow, and, and the son somehow has to be a creature of the father. Now, of course, Arius was responding to other extremists. There were people called Sibelians who taught that the father and the son were identical, right? and that was something that had previously been condemned by encyclical letters of various patriarchs and by synods in the East. So Arius, he sounds orthodox to a lot of people when he emphasizes the distinction between the father and the son. But this causes a huge controversy. This causes a raging controversy that's going to have to be settled. And it can't be settled while Licinius is ruling the East. Because first of all, Licinius is a pagan who thinks Christian disputes are silly and annoying. And second of all, you're going to have to be able to have a synod that involves bishops coming from the East and the West to settle this issue. But Constantine and Licinius couldn't get along for more than five minutes. And so you don't have peace between East and West. After publishing the Edict of Milan, Constantine and Licinius almost immediately stopped getting along. They almost immediately went back to war with one another. Between 313 and 317, Constantine conquered about half uh, of Licinius's territory. The treaty that they made in 317 didn't last long either. Uh, war began almost immediately again, in part due to the fact that Licinius seems to have reneged on the Edict of Milan, in addition to prohibiting synods of bishops because he didn't like it when they would fight. He also seems to have purged his administration of Christians and purged the army of Christians. And, and It was looking a little bit Diocletian-esque in Constantine's mind, and he used that as a casus belli. And so the two of them fought on and off for the next seven years after 317. It was by 324, finally, that Constantine defeated Licinius and he surrendered. Licinius was executed uh, a few weeks after his surrender, although he, he surrendered under safe conduct. He was found to have been plotting, of course, and he probably was plotting, because <laughs> that's what you did back then. But anyway, so as of 324, Constantine now has full control of the empire. Now what's important is Constantine can oversee the church is dealing with these two major controversies, basically the, not only the militian schism, but the broader controversy over how to deal with Christians who recanted their faith under, under persecution, uh, which of course ends up being decided in favor of mercy. And then uh, the more important issue, uh, the more pressing and, and thorny issue, which is how to devise philosophical language, technical language, that can accurately describe the relationship of the father to the son. Now, to do this was no small task. Constantine didn't consider himself equipped to do this. Constantine's main objective was peace within the empire, peace within the church. Uh, and you have to remember, as we talked about last time, Constantine's vision of himself, it's drawn up very much on the model of late antique tetrarchs. It's drawn up very much on the model that was adopted by Diocletian, with the emperor being a sort of a divine figure. But if Constantine is truly a Christian, and he can't be a divine figure, he can at least be a mimesis of a divine figure, an imitation of a divine figure, the icon, the emblem, the symbol of God on earth. And that's certainly how he saw himself. And so he sees it as his responsibility to solve these theological and ecclesiastical problems. And so the solution is an ecumenical council, the first of its kind. Right? The idea of having a, an ecumenical synod. What, what does ecumenical mean? Ecumenical means worldwide. Right? You have the whole church in the world come to one place and discuss this issue. Right? And so that's what happens. Constantine appoints the year 325 for his ecumenical council, where it would meet, of course, at Nicaea. Now, events at Nicaea were interesting. We could spend the next hour talking about events at Nicaea. But I think it's more important to talk about what the Council of Nicaea produces. Basically, the, the Council of Nicaea produces a creed. It produces a creed that everyone there subscribes to, with the exception of two bishops. So you have over 300 bishops, and only two of them dissent from the Nicene Creed, and they're immediately exiled. Uh, they're, they're from Libya or something, but they're immediately sent out of the empire. Uh, they're not Muslims. <laughs> uh, Muammar Gaddafi wasn't born yet. Uh, but, um, the creed, though, it has one key element, one very technical element, right, which, which is where the real innovation lies at Nicaea. Constantine himself suggested, probably on the basis of advice from his main theological advisor at the time, he suggested the inclusion of a word, a technical Greek term, to describe the relationship of the son to the father. That word is homoousios. Homoousios. Now this is a word that we say in the creed every Sunday at Mass. We say consubstantial. 
right? Consubstantial is the word. Uh, in English, consubstantialem is the accusative form in the Latin. Uh, homo obviously means the same, and usios means substantial, right? So, uh, of the same substance, right? Homo usios. This word was the controversial term in the Nicene Creed. This is the word that excludes Arian doctrine, right? And this is the word that becomes so controversial after the Council of Nicaea. You see, here was the situation. Arius himself represented only one point on the spectrum of opinion about how to describe Christ's relationship to the Father. There were many, many other people, though, who had kind of tolerant attitudes towards different ways of expressing it, and they found the adoption of this term to be unnecessarily rigoristic. So the term Arian has to be understood in a very broad sense. The term Arian in the 4th century church refers not just to people who subscribe to the specific doctrine of Arius. The term Arian was applied widely as an epithet, as a term of abuse, for people who adopted either a kind of a tolerant attitude, that Arius's doctrine was okay and might be acceptable, etc., or people who thought that the issue just didn't matter at all and you shouldn't talk about whether Christ is of the same substance as the Father or what have you. But people who basically found this term to be too exclusive, too rigid, those became the Arian party within the church. Now at Nicaea, it looks like the Arian, uh, it looks like the Arian party was completely defeated. Right? Because of the inclusion of this term and the way in which everybody subscribed to it. But what we see is that after the Council of Nicaea, everything kind of goes haywire. Right? The key uh, ingredient in everything going haywire seems to be that it was after Nicaea that Constantine's main theological advisor went back to his see in Spain. Constantine's main advisor was the famous bishop Osius of Cordova. Right? And it was Osius of, of Cordova who was probably the most prominent figure aside from Constantine himself at the Council of Nicaea. When Osius goes back to Spain, Constantine falls under the influence of a couple of figures from the Eastern Empire who were, who basically felt that the Council of Nicaea was too hard on Arius. He falls under the influence of two men named Eusebius. One of them is called Eusebius of Nicomedia, the other Eusebius of Caesarea. These two men are both very significant figures. Eusebius of Caesarea, of course, was responsible for writing the life of Constantine, for writing a famous ecclesiastical history. He's often referred to as Eusebius the historian. Eusebius of Nicomedia, on the other hand, is a significant figure because he, more than anybody else, was close to Constantine after the Council of Nicaea and induced Constantine to adopt a vacillating, confused, directionless religious policy towards the Arian issue. What that meant was... After the Council of Nicaea, in the later years of Constantine's life, Arian sympathizers were tolerated. Arius himself was recalled from exile. Arian supporters were recalled from exile and restored to their sees. People who were too vocal and who stirred up too much trouble in opposing Arius, especially Athanasius of Alexandria, who opposed both Arius and the militians, were exiled. They were exiled for being rabble-rousers and for stirring up trouble. Constantine basically felt that peace was more important than orthodoxy, and as a result, ironically, he never had peace in the church, right? So basically, he was taking advice from the, the quote-unquote Arian party, and by that we mean in the broader sense, not people who were necessarily adherents of Arius, but people who felt that Arius should be tolerated. He adopted a tolerant policy in the interest of peace, and as a result, he had no peace. Right. So the Arian controversy is, is going to be part of Constantine's legacy. Right? It, it's something that's going to really rip the church apart uh, for decades, and really until the time of Theodosius in the latter part of the 4th century. Now, what do we make of Constantine's other accomplishments? His religious policy, as we say, it's, it's ultimately going to be decidedly mixed. By the time Constantine dies, which is 337, Arianism is firmly entrenched in the Eastern Church, right? So we have to have a, a kind of a, a nuanced assessment of Constantine's religious policy. Obviously, his endorsement of Christianity played a major, major role in the triumph of Christianity within the empire, right? We have to remember, although the blood of martyrs was certainly described by Tertullian as being the seed of Christians, it remains the case that by the end of the Diocletianic persecutions, Christians could not have comprised more than 5% of the empire. Right. It's only when you get Christian emperors that membership in the church really starts to explode, that urban centers become centers of uh, you know, where the majority of people, in, in many cases in the East, are Christians. In the West, 
less so, at least this early. But still, ev even in the West, in urban centers, you start getting a lot of Christians. Uh, by the year 400, maybe half the population of the empire was Christian. Right? And certainly by the year 500, virtually everybody in the Mediterranean world is a Christian. Right? So imperial endorsement plays a big, big role in the success of Christianity and, and the ability of Christians to, to create a, a fusion of Roman and Christian ideals, which they do very successfully in late antiquity. Now, on the other hand, the Arian controversy is something that you kind of have to tack on as part of Constantine's religious and spiritual legacy. Uh, and his sons were very similar to him in that respect. Now, what about Constantine's other reforms? How does Constantine compare to Diocletian as an administrator? Well, certainly Constantine had the wisdom to maintain most of Diocletian's reforms. Right. There was one particular respect, though, in which Constantine actually excelled uh, beyond what Diocletian had accomplished, and it was directly as a result of his Christianity. Constantine was able to stabilize the monetary currency of the empire because he was a Christian. Now, how does that make sense? Well, look at it this way. Nobody in the ancient world really understood what gave money its value. Diocletian failed to stabilize the Roman currency. It was his one great failure. And he failed to do so precisely because he didn't understand what made money valuable. He thought if, if you stabilized the metallic content of money, you could just mint it ad infinitum, and it would still be equally valuable. So if you mint infinite numbers of gold, not gold, copper and billin and other alloys, it was what Diocletian was working with. If you mint infinite numbers of, of those coins, as long as they have the same amount of copper in them, they'll all be of equal value, even if there's infinity number of them. Right? Uh, it, it doesn't work that way. So Diocletian failed. Constantine, however, succeeded in stabilizing the value of Roman currency precisely because he was a Christian. Because as a Christian, he felt motivated to forbid pagan worship and pagan sacrifices which he did in various ways. He forbade divination, he forbade most rites that involved actual sacrifice, he forbade ritual prostitution and orgies and things like that that were involved in pagan worship. Right? As a result, Constantine felt that pagan temples no longer needed treasuries. And so he stripped from the treasuries of pagan temples throughout the empire gold votive offerings. Pagan temples were filled with gold votive offerings. Uh, he was able to take gold from all across the empire, melt it down, and mint it as coins. Right? Constantine's gold coins had a name. Uh, they were called, the, the coin was called the nomisma in Greek. Now, a nomisma was a gold coin of, of some value. Right? Uh, you would use nomismata not for going to 7-Eleven or whatever. You know, those types of transactions were generally not monetized in the Roman Empire. You would use a nomisma either as the government for paying official salaries, for paying bureaucrats and for paying soldiers, right? And you would use them also for paying taxes, right? So Constantine was able to create the circulation of a stable gold-based currency, right? which Diocletian had never been able to do. The gold that he got from the pagan temples was abundant enough to be minted into coins, and yet there was a finite supply of it. And so it, it held its value in pretty stable fashion. It provided a stable currency for large transactions and for any kind of transaction with the government, basically. So Constantine, as an administrator, he didn't have the creative genius of a Diocletian. But things certainly didn't get any worse from an administrative point of view under Constantine. Now, what about the succession? What about the fourth century empire after the death of Constantine? So Constantine leaves behind, when he dies, an empire which is Christian, which is stable, which has a budget, a treasury, a currency, uh, it, which has secure borders, which is not immune from foreign invasion, but certainly as secure as it's been in a long time. What he doesn't leave behind is plans for a stable succession. Just like Diocletian, just like Diocletian, Constantine is going to find that his plans for the succession go awry. Basically what happens is after 337, Constantine was supposed to be succeeded by his three remaining sons, and one of his nephews, right? There was supposed to be a, a four-way division of the empire into a... Uh, it was basically divided among four Augusti, was the theory. But what happened was this. After Constantine's death, Eusebius of Nicomedia came out with a story. Now, Eusebius of Nicomedia was with Constantine on his deathbed. And so he comes out with this, uh, a deathbed story to the effect that Constantine was poisoned by members of his family that Constantine was poisoned by his relatives. And so as a result, many of Constantine's nephews and other relatives were immediately assassinated by the army. 
as punishment for having poisoned him. Right? This left his three sons as the only figures remaining, and so the, his three sons definitely benefit from this. Did they order the assassinations? Apparently not. It actually appears that they were beneficiaries, although not direct proponents of this. But in any event, the three sons couldn't keep from fighting each other. You know, squabbles over prerogatives, squabbles over where the boundaries of the territory should be. It leads the, the three sons to fight, and eventually one of them is left standing. And that's Constantius II. Now, Constantius II shared his father's unfortunate proclivity for Arianism. Constantius II was very tolerant of Arianism. He you know, was very hard on Athanasius. Uh, and as a result, Constantius II's reign is going to be one in which Arianism is maintained. Constantius II was successful in many other ways, though. He was successful in establishing a stable Persian frontier, for example. He was successful uh, you know, in various administrative things, even to the point of being able to give great largesses to the army and to the civil service, and making himself relatively popular, uh, especially in the early days of his reign. Uh, and he has a relatively long one. He reigns from 337 to 361. Now, by the time of Constantius II's death, we're seeing the emergence of a distinctive late antique Christian culture in both East and West. It, it's a very Latin-speaking culture in the West, and it's, it's a very Greek-speaking culture in the East. Right? So by the time of Constantius II's death, Christians, especially in urban centers, were very prominent and very visible. Thus, it's interesting that Constantius II was succeeded by the man he was succeeded by, whose name was Julian. Now, many of you might know Julian. Julian has kind of a, an interesting little epithet that goes after his name. Julian the Apostate, right? Now, the reason why he's called Julian the Apostate instead of Julian the Pagan is because Julian the Apostate was actually baptized. Right? He, he, Julian the Apostate has the distinction of being the first baptized ruler of the Roman Empire, you know, who, who was actually ruling as a baptized man. He tried to wash his baptism off, though, using bull's blood. He thought that would work. I don't know why. Uh, but in any event, Julian the Apostate is one of the most interesting figures of late antiquity. He reigned for two years, from 361 to 363, and he tried desperately to preside over a pagan revival in the empire. His revival failed in large part because of the brevity of his reign. Right? He didn't have a long enough reign for his reforms to become permanent. But Julian was a funny guy. He was an idiosyncratic pagan. Right? He basically adopted a synthesis of old-fashioned paganism with Neoplatonic philosophy. It was a strange synthesis. There's, there's great tension, certainly, between traditional pagan piety and Neoplatonic philosophy. But he thought he could marry the two into a, a, a synthesis that he called Hellenismos, or Hellenism. Right? Traditional, uh, what he thought was, was the best of Greek culture, effectively. Paganism and Neoplatonic philosophy. Unlike the other late antique emperors, Julian the Apostate disdained the, the public image of the divine being. He disdained the traditional behavior and propaganda associated with the, with the late antique emperor. He instead preferred to be viewed as a philosopher. So he would dress in raggedy robes. Uh, he didn't shave. He, he grew this beard that was very unusual for a Roman emperor. He would get food in it and stuff. And, uh, he was an ascetic figure. Right? And so actually the, the residents of Antioch were very very annoyed at Julian because the imperial court was there at Antioch for most of his reign, and uh, he shut down all the amusements, he shut down the theater and the circus and all the fun stuff, uh, because he, he thought everybody should be doing philosophy and sacrificing bulls, I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> he, he's an interesting kind of compelling figure. But Julian's big project, aside from creating a, a pagan church to kind of parallel the Christian church, which was a very interesting aspect of his Hellenismos, he tried to create pagan high priests that were a lot like bishops in the different cities, and uh, even charitable organizations and things like that to mimic Christianity. But his other major project was the invasion of Persia. Julian felt that if he could invade Persia and, and defeat the Persian Empire, it would vindicate his paganism. Not only that, some, of, some Christian historians tell us that Julian was... Uh, he thought that he was the reincarnation of Alexander the Great, supposedly. <laughs> what do you do if you're Alexander the Great? You conquer Persia, right? It's obvious. <laughs> so, so Julian invaded Persia in 362, and it was an absolute disaster. He sailed down the Tigris towards Tesaphon, the Persian capital. He got way downstream, hundreds of miles downstream, and then he burned his fleet. 
to, to motivate the guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so they, they may have been motivated, but they were crushed by the Persians, absolutely crushed. And Julian himself was killed by a spear. Now, the pagan, pagan orator Libanius says that the spear was thrown by a Christian. The Christian historians agree, and they say that the guy was a saint. Uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> um, it's unlikely that he actually was killed by a Christian. According to the testimony of his physician, he was killed by a spear that would have been, uh, it was the kind of spear used by Arab mercenaries in the service of the Persian Empire. So it's unlikely that it was a Christian Roman soldier. But that, that's, that's the good story, is that a, a Christian soldier uh, you know, killed Julian the Apostate. So Ju- Julian's reforms are interesting, they're compelling, they're weird, but his reign is so short that he can't really threaten the Christian establishment in the Roman Empire, right? And he was succeeded by Christian emperors. He was succeeded by Jovian, who had a very short reign. Jovian wasn't a Boy Scout. Don't ever light a charcoal fire in a tent and close your tent uh, to keep warm, like, because you won't wake up. And that's what, that's what Jovian did. So, yeah, don't, don't do that. <laughs> uh, um, Jovian was succeeded, of course, by Valentinian and his brother Valens. Right. Valentinian and Valens were an interesting pair, right? and, and it's with the reign of Valens that I can kind of hand you off to the next phase in our Institute of Catholic Culture, because it would be in Valens's time that the first major barbarian victory over Roman armies would take place. The Battle of Adrianople in 378 occurred when Goths who had migrated into the Roman Empire, Goths who were desperately seeking refuge from the, the far more savage Huns, they sought the security of the Roman Empire. They sought the benefits that living in the Roman Empire could convey. Right? They certainly weren't looking to destroy the empire. But when they were mistreated, when, when their settlement in the empire didn't go as planned, the Goths revolted, and they destroyed a Roman army at Adrianople in 378. And the emperor of the east, Valens, was killed in the battle. His body was never found, because before his death, he had donned the armor of a common infantryman and run into the battle. Uh, So the the Battle of Adrianople was an an absolute disaster for the Roman Empire. What it meant was that they had to come to terms with barbarians being in the empire and being very powerful. Now, the emperor Theodosius tried to find a compromise with them by using them as soldiers but they still maintained their unity and cohesiveness as Gothic tribesmen, effectively. And so they could misbehave when they wanted to. And it was Goths like that who, in the year 410, sacked the city of Rome. Now, the city of Rome was no longer an imperial capital when it was sacked. It was no longer a functioning administrative political center. And so why does the sack of Rome matter? Why did it matter to everybody at the time? Because it shocked educated opinion at the time. It shocked everyone into realizing that something was wrong. The sack of Rome didn't cause problems for the empire. It was a symptom of those problems. And it's very, very easy to convince yourself that everything is normal, even when it's not, even when you're living in an empire in decline. You you can convince yourself that everything is normal when you get up and go about your business and everything looks normal. But when something like that happens, you realize that everything is not. And St. Augustine certainly had to deal with the fallout from that. And you'll learn a lot more about St. Augustine next time. So, thanks. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you very much. Uh, We'll take about a three or four minute break. Why did uh, Constantine decide to create himself a new capital? And why did he choose Byzantium to make that his new capital? Great, great question. Thank you very much for asking that question, because in my stream of consciousness, that was something I didn't really talk about. Yeah, no, actually, the, the questioner is quite correct. The, the question is, why did Constantine choose to make a new capital, uh, and why did he choose the site that he did on the Bosporus at the, the ancient city of Byzantium? Very good question. Basically, what happened was this. Constantine, he ended up defeating Licinius in 324, right near there. Uh, he actually he had besieged Licinius in the old city of Byzantium. Uh, and then Licinius, of course, uh, I, I think he ended up escaping to Asia Minor and, and was finally dealt with there. But the fact of the matter is that Constantine wanted to build a capital that symbolized the refoundation of the empire. Right? Now, why did he choose the site that he did? Well, it was a convenient site for a variety of reasons. A lot of people focus on the fact that the site of Byzantium was so defensible militarily. 
That became very important later on. That becomes very important in the 5th century when people realize that the barbarian federati are really unreliable. And Themius, the, the uh, prefect under Theodosius II, he starts building these great walls in 413. But in Constantine's, in Constantine's time, defensibility wasn't really the issue because Constantine never imagined that he would have to defend his city. The issue was that the, the ancient site of Byzantium lay at the crossroads of east and west. It lay at the crossroads of the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. It lay at the crossroads of Europe and Asia. So it gave him a central location where he could set a kind of a new capital for the empire that he fully intended to be a new Rome. He, he genuinely thought of it as being a new Rome. That's why he even established a senate at Constantinople. What was the senate supposed to do? Nothing. He didn't want the Senate to do anything. He, he wanted there to be a Senate, though, because it, Rome has a Senate. <laughs> so, so he establishes a Senate there. It was kind of like uh, a glorified English gentleman's club, basically, you know, for, for wealthy people to be senators. It wasn't, they wasn't supposed to have a role in the government, but it was supposed to lend a kind of Roman uh, mystique to the, the new city, that, which became known as Constantinople. It's not clear that he wanted to call it that, but everybody started calling it Constantinople, because uh, the, the old name, the classical name, Byzantium, just, just didn't really apply anymore. Byzantium was a nice town in classical times. There were baths there, there was an arena, an amphitheater, things like that, but he he expanded it drastically. Uh, Constantine, very ambitiously, he built walls way outside the, the original city limits. And then it, the city was expanded further, of course, in the 5th century. It took a long time to fill up all that space, though. In fact, in Constantine's lifetime, Constantinople was never a big city. It was a makeshift city kind of under construction. Constantine himself was usually not there. He was usually absent, you know, doing various things. And, and when he left Constantinople, he would take virtually all his important officials and administrators with him. Like most late antique emperors, Constantine had a traveling bureaucracy that went with him. But it, it was really Constantine's successors whose commitment to the location made it become the place that it eventually did. So that by the time you get to 1100 or 1200 AD, Westerners would travel to Constantinople and be overwhelmed by what they saw. It, it was something that they couldn't even imagine. The streets, the domes, the churches, the arcades, it was ten times the size of the largest city in the West. All right. So, thank you for the question. Why did Constantine kill his wife? Oh, <laughs> another good question. Um, the wife that he killed was his second wife. Constantine had a, f a first wife who died young. And with his first wife, the wife of his youth who died young, he had one son whose name was Crispus. With his second wife, Fausta, who was actually Maximian's daughter, he had three sons whose names were Constantine, Constantius, and Constans. Uh, and so you have Crispus, and then you have Constantine, Constantius, and Constans. Now, the thing was, Fausta got herself into trouble, because what she did was she came to Constantine and she accused Crispus, the son by the other wife, of trying to seduce her. And so he executed Crispus, who would have been a great successor to Constantine, was a competent military and naval commander, and, and you know, seems to have been an accomplished young man, executed by his own father uh, for trying to seduce his wife. Then Constantine apparently discovered that she had actually been doing the seducing, and hell knows no fury like a woman scorned, and so that's why she had, you know, that's why she had lied and had him executed. So, uh, so he ended up then executing her. I, I think he put her in a in a bath with the the steam on and just closed the door. And yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So there you are. I'll count myself scandalized uh, along with the rest <laughs> of your students about the, the the status of Constantine. And my mm -hmm. question will be, was he great? Mm -hmm. When he won the Battle of Milvian Bridge, he dedicated the monument to his victory with pagan imagery, pagan oh, sure. gods on it, no Christian symbols, even though the battle was won under the sign of Christ. Mm -hmm. His coins had Sol Invictus pagan imagery on it, not oh, yeah. Christian symbology. Yeah. Um, he, he, even when it, he built Constantinople, he put Sol Invictus symbolism in there. And when he dedicated yeah. the city, his crown was mm -hmm. a crown of Apollo. Oh, sure. Yeah. He wanted to avoid the rigors of church discipline. Mm -hmm. But he was willing to think that he could dictate the, the conduct of the church. Yeah. When he finally was baptized, Keep when going. he finally yeah. was baptized, mm -hmm. he was baptized by the it same Arian pagan who had Not Saint pagan, Athanasius no. yeah. exiled from the, mm -hmm. the realm. Yeah. Was Constantine great? No, th this is actually great. I, I'd say give, give him a hand. Give him a round of applause. Um, yeah. No, no, this... This is awesome because cause you do have to state the counter-argument to Constantine's greatness. And, and you've stated it 
very eloquently and very well. You, you hit all the main points uh, that one could bring up against Constantine. Certainly his, his personal conduct was not always immaculate. Uh, his policies towards the church were often misguided, overweening, directionless. As you say, he certainly was... Um, he still carried a lot of pagan baggage with him for a long time after his alleged conversion. Everything you say is true. The, the only thing, Eusebius of Nicomedia, I wouldn't use the word pagan to describe him or, or other Arians because, uh, yeah, you could say, you could say that. Uh, certainly, certainly a heretic. Um, on the other hand, Constantine is considered great because of what he did for Christianity. Right? It, it remains a fact that there would be no Christian civilization without Constantine. The Roman Empire never would have been the Christian Empire that it became without Constantine. The, all the great Christian civilizations of the East and the West, the Christian civilizations of Armenia, of the Byzantine Empire, and all the barbarian kingdoms of the West that emerged in, in, in the aftermath of Rome's fall, all of them, to a certain extent, owe their genesis to Constantine. Constantine is the grandfather of every Christian civilization in a very real and direct sense. And that's why he's viewed as great. He also built a lot of churches and knocked down a lot of temples, and people liked that. Uh, but <laughs> but, but that, that's why he's, he's viewed as Constantine the Great, effectively, because his personal shortcomings are certainly many. They're certainly undeniable. But nevertheless, his historic role as the man who was the direct father of Christian civilization that's something that, that can never be taken away from him. And, uh, and that's certainly why the, the church cuts him a lot of slack. Now, I don't take that the wrong way. I, you know, I, I don't mean to say that the church cuts him slack on, on the moral level or anything like that. But in terms of his memory, his, his memory is, is that of a man whose public contributions to Christianity are so substantial that in terms of how he's remembered, they effectively outweigh his private shortcomings. If Constantine saw himself as a representative of God on earth and he created an ecumenical council with all of the bishops, how did he coexist with the Pope? How did he coexist with the Pope? Oh, the, the Pope liked it. The Pope went along with it. Um, there were two papal representatives at the council that Constantine summoned. Uh, people always get caught up with this issue of calling a council and, and who calls it and all of that. That only becomes a controversial issue in the early modern period, really, summoning a council uh, and, and who has the right to summon a council. The fact that an emperor would summon a council was not controversial at all. Uh, in late antiquity. Anyone can summon a council. Seriously, I mean, if I pulled out a megaphone and said, I hereby summon a council, it would be a council if all the bishops came and papal representatives came and all the patriarchs came. It would be a council. The fact that I called it wouldn't make it a council. It wouldn't confer legitimacy on it, but it doesn't make it illegitimate either. Uh, and that's... ...conflicts with Constantine's view of himself as a representative of Christ on earth. Well, that's... That, I think, is a good point. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't so much relate to the issue of Nicaea, I think, because cause certainly the, the popes of late antiquity acknowledged that the emperors were often in the best position to advance the interests of Christianity. They were also often in the best position to mess things up, <laughs> which they often did. And so the, him, him calling a council at Nicaea is, isn't a controversial issue. His, Constantine's broader ideology of who he is and all of that, it's mostly improper even to call it his, it's more the, the creation of panegyrists and people who were trying to fashion his memory, people like Eusebius of Caesarea. That whole image of, of who Constantine was theologically and all of that, it's, it certainly borrows a lot from Diocletian's reforms. It borrows a lot from the view of the emperor as a divine being and, and all of that. Uh, and it's, it's not part of church teaching or anything like that. That may have been how Constantine saw himself or whatever, but the, the popes of Rome were not really in a position to contest that any more than they were in a position to contest the fact that Julian the Apostate was Alexander the Great or, or, or the fact that Diocletian was the son of Jupiter or, or anything like that. If, if Constantine said, I'm, I am God with respect to this world, the popes kind of nod and say, well, in some respects that's true. God rules the universe and, and you rule the empire and there are some analogies there. Nevertheless, we see the, the church always, and this is interesting because a big part of the Byzantine legacy, though, is the emperor's in that role of representative of God on earth, being called to task by bishops and monks and true representatives of the church when they go astray. And so I, I guess that, that's a bigger part of the picture and a bigger part of the context, is that don't be too alarmed by Constantine having an exaggerated view of his role within the church when every Byzantine emperor after him also had an exaggerated view of their role within the church. Uh, and that's why Byzantine emperors are often the source of real problems in the church 
uh, attempting to co either compromise with heresy or promote heresy. You know, in the case of monophysitism, in the case of iconoclasm, you often see that, right? But they also sometimes were great proponents of suppressing heresy. So the emperor was a great force for good or for ill, and the church was willing to work with that. Thank you very much, Brennan. All right. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.